2: Campsite Media
3: In November 2015, Derek's money runner was arrested by police. The runner was on his way back from Ontario, where he'd met Derek's buyer, another Mohawk named Jason Hill. In the trunk of the car was a bag full of cash, payment for the tobacco shipments Derek had sent to Jason. I just figured they were watching uh, down at Jason's place because there's
4: so many uh, trucks going in and out of there bringing tobacco because they're basically the headquarters of of the cigarettes. A lot of the cigarettes are coming from there, coming back to here, to uh, the Quebec side. So I thought they were watching him.
3: Oh, so you really didn't have like any suspicion that they were going to fall back on you with all this?
4: Well, no, I mean, if I did, I probably wouldn't have sent any more.
3: (laughs) Derek was upset about having to stomach the loss, but it didn't stop him from keeping the business going. He had no idea that he was a major target for an undercover sting operation.
4: I noticed the cops in that were following us around, but they're always around here, so
3: it was nothing really uh, new to me. Since Derek first appeared on the Project MyGale radar, investigators had collected hundreds of hours of wiretap phone calls and thousands of texts. Undercover police were now deeply embedded in the operation, and the scope of the criminal organization was finally coming into focus. There were now dozens of people caught in the MyGale web, and cops were getting ready to spring the trap. Jimmy, the anonymous investigator who worked on MyGale, helped plan the final operation.
5: It takes weeks of planning. You gotta vet the agencies, you gotta vet the officers, you gotta vet the sequence in which you're gonna take them down. You typically wanna take down the people that would be most violent first, so hopefully they don't get word uh, and, and, and load up. So uh, the, the planning, the execution is tremendous, right down to, we gotta have breakfast for guys because we're bringing them in at two o'clock in the morning. The scope is massive, from tactical units, Um, dealing with guys that may have guns to how much Timmy's donuts are we gonna get. Those raids needed to all be conducted at the same time. Every door that needed to be kicked needed to be kicked at the same time. The first thing you want him to know is you're screwing your gun in his ear, and that's it. At least from my perspective, with informants on the reservations and, and friends in law enforcement, nobody had a clue this was happening. It was it was
3: brilliant. Were you taken by surprise? Did you know it was coming?
5: Well,
4: we knew eventually uh, it was going to happen because it's not the first time that you know that they uh, they targeted uh, the reserve because a lot of tobacco was coming to this reserve and a lot of others. But uh, we knew eventually it was going to happen because. There was so much surveillance going on for months and months at a time. Um, I used to see it all the time. Undercovers, uh, you just, they they, they stick out like a sore thumb. You know, it's just a matter of time that it was going to happen, like I said. And
3: it's just who were they going to grab? The way Derek saw it, it wasn't going to be him. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He'd been in the business for years. Why would they go after him now?
4: I was a middleman, that's all I was, and I was dragged into this this mess through those other guys that were being investigated doing other things. And it just so happens that I bought stuff off those guys and I was dragged into all their bullcrap and all their people that were doing bad things.
3: From Campside Media and Dan Patrick Productions, this is Running Smoke. Boogity, boogity, boogity! Let's go, racing drivers! I'm Rajiv Gola, and this is episode three the takedown. Derek White had spent nearly his whole life around the tobacco industry. In a place like Ganawage, it was actually hard not to get involved with cigarettes. He started out helping his grandma sell cartons in the driveway as a teenager. And later on, when he built up his first gas station, he started selling cigarettes inside. And for years, that was his only involvement with the industry. Just selling cigarettes in his stores, tax-free, to individual buyers like you or me. But in the late 2000s, Derek wanted to take his racing career to the next level, and he was looking for another revenue stream, when a friend recommended that Derek get into the business of wholesale tobacco. Instead of selling to consumers, he would sell raw tobacco to cigarette manufacturers in Mohawk territories. Oh, it's very expensive, this uh, racing. So, I mean,
4: like, any little bit, you know, helps. And I figured it's a no-brainer. I mean, this is what we've been doing for forever, so I said, uh,
3: let, me, uh, let me try this out. Derek went down to a casino in the Aguasasne Mohawk Territory, and there he was introduced to a man named Samuel Baker, a tobacco broker from North Carolina. We tried to reach out to Sam Baker, but he didn't respond to our requests. In any case, Derek says he struck a deal with Sam and started wiring him money for truckloads of raw tobacco can you explain a bit of what that whole tobacco business looked like and what your role in that was like how did it work and how much of it were you personally involved in
4: I mean it's no secret money was sent to the states sent to a a broker the broker would go and buy it at the factory wherever they wherever they they, uh, they grow the tobacco or whatever they load it up in the trucks and they ship it across and when they when they pull up uh, at my door, I was just paying it just like anything else. You figure, hey, everything's, uh,
3: everything's kosher with it. You know, it's... It, everything's paid for. Derek thought he was totally in the clear. He knew that Canada levied a federal excise tax on every tobacco shipment as trucks crossed the border. But that wasn't his problem. Derek only took possession of the tobacco after it crossed the border. Normally, uh,
4: it's the exporter or the, the guy driving the truck or the company takes care of all the taxes and everything. So when it's delivered to my place, you hire a broker, they take care of everything. They give you a price, it's this price. You figure, okay, well, it's on my doorstep now. It's all paid, you know? why I don't have to worry about anything after that.
3: In the beginning, Derek says he didn't even know how the tobacco got across the border. He turned a blind eye to that entire part of the operation. And as far as he knew, It was all being handled above board. I
4: thought there was no risk because they told me they were doing it all legal. And as long as I made a couple of bucks on it, uh, it it was worth it. They told me it was guaranteed to get
3: here, so I took their word for it. But as things went along, Derek started getting a peek behind the curtain and found himself drawn deeper into the operation. In one instance, Derek says the tobacco broker asked him to find a warehouse in New Jersey. Derek claims he didn't know why they needed it, but according to investigators, the warehouse was used to swap tobacco between trailers behind closed doors, making it more difficult for law enforcement to keep track of the shipments. Sort of like a three-card Monte. I was able to find somebody
4: that has a warehouse that could store it there, and the other guys could go pick it up. Mm-hmm. So they would only go like halfway. That's all I did. I mean, that was my that was my part of the thing. I say, okay, well, there's a place here. They dropped it off, and mm-hmm. whoever picked it up picked it up.
3: Yeah. Then, the transporters started asking for $10,000 in cash on top of the usual fee. Derek soon learned that it was being used to create false paperwork for the truck drivers. Paperwork that stated the trucks were full of fruits and vegetables. Things looked shady, but Derek sent the money anyway.
4: You can't argue with these guys. If not, they'll just say, well, tough. They're going to keep uh, whatever product they have in the truck. And they're just going to keep it. They, they, they basically just said, mind your own business. We're going to get it to you. So I had no choice.
3: I had to pay them whatever they wanted. It was clear that things were getting into a gray area, getting a little risky. But Derek wasn't dissuaded. In fact, he got a kick out of it. It's almost like, uh, uh, how do you say, the first
4: time you do it, then the second time is like, oh, okay. It's almost like a drug addict. (laughs) Basically. (laughs) You try a drug and then boom, you want to do it again. You want more, you want more. It's... That's all it was.
3: After a few years of doing business with his brokers in North Carolina and his buyer in Ontario, Derek ran into a race car driver named Paul Jean. Derek struck up a deal to rent his race cars to Paul Jean for $30,000 a weekend. But after a few weeks, Paul was behind on payments. Paul asked if he could pay with raw tobacco instead, and Derek said, sure, why not? A truck arrived at his warehouse soon after. When
4: Paul Jean frickin' brought the first load of tobacco, that's when they started doing the investigation on me.
3: <laughs> Turns out Paul Jean was working with a guy named Sylvain Etier, allegedly the mastermind behind a massive tobacco smuggling operation. So when Derek received tobacco from Paul Jean, it was actually Sylvain Etier's organization that was delivering it. And Sylvain Etier was one of the main targets of Project My Gale. Undercover cops were on him like flies on shit. One of the trailers that they
4: followed ended up coming to my place. So right from there, they saw, oh, okay, well, we got to link this guy with these guys, you know, and we had nothing to do with them. All they were doing was they were dropping it off and they were gone. It was tobacco, plain and simple.
0: Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365.
7: 21 plus only
0: must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER.
7: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year
3: As Derek mentioned earlier, he was far from the first person to be targeted in an operation like Project MyGale. Ganawage has been under intense scrutiny from law enforcement for decades because of its relationship with tobacco. I wanted to get a better sense of how the Mohawk cigarette industry worked and what life was like in the legal gray area. So I drove out on the back roads of Ganawage and ended up in front of a Quonset hut with a blacked-out Humvee and an Escalade sitting out front. Do you mind uh, introducing yourself and telling us uh, where we are?
6: My name's is Guna- dio Ross, and uh, you're in Kahnawake Mohawk Territory, and you're at my uh, tobacco
3: facility. And uh, what's, uh, what's going on here? What's, uh, what do you do here? Well, we
6: manufacture uh, cigarettes, quite a few different brands. So we take it right from the cut product, the cut tobacco,
3: all the way to the end to a finished product. As soon as the factory door swung open, I was smacked in the face with the smell of tobacco. It felt like walking into a TGI Friday's in Daytona when you could still smoke inside. And about how many cigarettes a year do you produce? A
6: year, I I wouldn't be able to tell you, weekly. I mean, on a good week, maybe 700 cases a week. There's 10,000 cigarettes in a case.
3: Are these all sold on the reservation? Yes.
6: Yes. How old is this machine? It looks like it's from the 60s. Oh, it's from the 80s, actually. But I mean, a lot of machines, they may look old, they may look rough, but machines are machines. They get the job done, you know. Is it difficult to get
3: machines into Gunalaga?
6: Well, it was at one point, but if you know the
3: right people, you can get anything into (laughs) Gunalaga. And Dio should know, because before he was a full-fledged cigarette manufacturer, he was a smuggler.
6: Oh, when I was smuggling, it was like almost a free for all. I loved it. <laughs> it was action every day. You're on a boat full of full of cigarettes, get a taste by cops. It was never us, but there was gunshots and sometimes in a certain area, other crews, I guess, a little crazier. <laughs>
3: In the 80s and 90s, brand-name cigarettes were smuggled across the St. Lawrence River. Smugglers were making use of the quirky geography of the U.S.-Canadian border, which cuts right through the middle of the Aguasasne Mohawk territory, a couple hours' drive from Ganawage. There were no border guards or customs agents on the territory, so you could easily smuggle cartons of cigarettes from the American side across the river to the Canadian side, where they could then be distributed to Mohawk territories across the country. But it was still risky business, Because as soon as the tobacco left the territory, it was fair game for the police.
6: Get all your shit loaded up and ready to go, and then you got the highway to deal with. Sending out dozens of cars, spotters, guys down a few kilometers with binoculars, watching what's coming, what's going. Just hoping all your cars make it. Yeah, those were some good days, crazy days.
3: the risk was worth it. Canada had started taxing the hell out of cigarettes. And if you could manage to smuggle them into the reserve from the States, you could sell them much cheaper and pocket a hefty profit. But here's something that might surprise you. The biggest boosters for the Mohawk cigarette industry were actually big tobacco companies themselves. Specifically, R.J. Reynolds and its subsidiaries.
6: I was younger at the time. I probably
3: didn't know what was
6: going on, but you see all the main brands like Mark 10, DeMaurier, Exports. But uh, they, were, they were all in on that,
3: too. Despite what you might think about big tobacco companies, they're not as honest and upstanding as they might seem. And back in the 1990s when Canada hiked up cigarette taxes, big tobacco was not happy. Higher taxes meant fewer sales. And that's not something any self-respecting, cigar-chopping executive can stomach. They needed to find a way to sell cheaper cigarettes, and Aguasasne Territory provided a solution. R.J. Reynolds and its subsidiary companies would send their Canadian products to America, sidestepping the Canadian taxes. Those cigarettes were then taken to the Aguasasne Territory, which sits on the border. And then Mohawk smugglers would bring those cigarettes back into Canada, where they would be sold on reservation cheaper than anywhere else. Smokers got cheaper cigarettes, R.J. Reynolds recouped its losses, and Mohawk entrepreneurs made a hell of a lot of money. It was a pretty ingenious and elegant solution. Within a few short years, smoke shops lined all the main roads of Ganawage, and the ripple effects of the new economy were impossible to miss. At one point, I'd say at least three-quarters of this reserve was
6: employed by this this industry, you know? People are building new homes, buying new cars. Uh, You see it nowadays where You know, people are building nicer homes, bigger homes. They got the money to do it. Then one day, it just all ended.
3: All stopped. Eventually, the law caught up to R.J. Reynolds and slapped him with a lawsuit filed under the RICO Act, the same law used to take down mafias and gangs. After decades of litigation, R.J. Reynolds was fined $400 million. But more importantly for our story, the steady stream of brand-name cigarettes that Mohawks had depended on for years had dried up. But that just meant folks had to get creative.
6: Why take the chance in smuggling the cigarettes from one reserve to the next when you can make it
3: here, right? Mohawk entrepreneurs started ordering cigarette rolling machines and building up factories, just like Dio's. And now today there's probably
6: <laughs> up upwards of 20, 20 locations, all different sizes. You, you know, you could have uh, bigger facilities all the way down to somebody running in a
3: garage. But that's not to say that rolling your own cigarettes is perfectly risk-free, because you still need to get tobacco into Ganawage, And most tobacco sellers in Canada or the U.S. won't sell to unlicensed facilities. So Mohawk manufacturers have to get creative with their supply chain, which isn't always looked upon kindly by the Canadian government. This, I, I think this industry is like playing a chess game
6: with the government. So, you know, they always make their moves, we gotta make our moves, try and be, 10 steps ahead of them, so to speak, you know? So, sometimes the reserve will be dry. It'll be hard to get tobacco in here because they might have put something new in place to try and install the system, or, and then other times of the year, it's just like the floodgates open. Somebody comes up with a new system
3: that, you know, the cops aren't onto yet. They run it, they run it hard. What's it like to kind of have your entire life in that that gray zone of, Walking that line of what the government considers legal and illegal.
6: Like I said, it could be a rush for some people. For me, when I was younger, yeah, it was a rush. But uh, I can't handle the rush anymore. You know, a lot of people probably pulled out of this business too for that reason, you know. Just too much to worry about all the time. Getting harassed at the border, getting harassed every, everywhere.
3: Now I hear what you're saying. A former smuggler who drives around in a blacked-out Humvee and runs a cigarette factory deep in the woods might be badass. But why don't we zoom out a bit? Talk to someone with a bit of distance on the issue. Someone who's examined it from an outside perspective.
1: My name is Jane Dixon. I am a full professor in the Department of Law and Legal Studies at Carleton University.
3: That's right. We're bringing out the big guns, baby. She's got degrees. There's an S on the end of that. Multiple degrees. What's more... Jane has spent her career focused on indigenous rights and cross-border issues, and she sees the criminalization of tobacco smuggling as more of a political issue than a legal one.
1: This activity is only criminalized because governments have chosen to criminalize it. the The cross-border economy is for many uh, indigenous people and many many Mohawk people, um, not just a a mode of economic development. It is also, a, a fundamental right that extends to the Mohawk people as Indigenous people. Um, it is also simply the continuation of a practice that predates the border. And, and so, you know, there's another reason to go, well, you know what? Maybe it's really interesting that governments weren't ever able to support this kind of development. So now, acting on a traditional historical right, this community is building itself up in really positive ways in Canada at least, um, we seem to get very upset with Indigenous people who get wealthy. Were it not for the presence of that border and the presence of settler governments on either side of that border, this economy would not um, not be referred to, not stigmatized or labeled as essentially a form of criminal enterprise.
3: The wealth that Ganawage generated with the tobacco trade, and later on with casinos, meant that they could stand on their own feet financially. And in that way, they've sort of been an example that other indigenous communities have looked up to.
1: Within Canada, uh, in recent history, the Mohawks have been one of the strongest and most activist voices in terms of leading the way, in terms, of demanding equality, demanding respect for their rights, and just generally not putting up with any shit. That makes them very dangerous. And so, you know, what better way to limit the power of the Mohawk nation to lift up all Indigenous nations uh, in Canada and, and maybe, uh, you know, even over the border in the, in the northern United States um, than to criminalize them and, and present them all as a threat and present them all as, you know, a, somehow not only a, a threat to, to the economy, you know, and the supposedly a threat to massive, incredibly wealthy corporations, right?
7: Everything that we do to, to um, make ourselves better is smuggling or illegal or, you know, criminal.
3: Steve Bonspiel of the Eastern Door Newspaper, which covers news across several Mohawk territories.
7: That's the way they they term it, because to make it make sense to them, I mean, it all comes down to tax dollars, right? I mean, it's... it's, uh, They feel they're losing out on the tax dollars. They're the ones that are getting paid from the resources from our lands, you know, building on our lands, um, paying taxes to their own, uh, you know, communities and whatever to build up their communities, not ours. And meanwhile, we're getting left behind. So... We've been pushing this corner. You know, it's like, what else were we supposed to do?
3: Naturally, there's a pretty contentious relationship between Mohawks and the tobacco trade and the Canadian government, which says the entire industry is illegal. And it also means there's a constant, high-level law enforcement presence around Ganawage. If you could talk a bit about the police presence and the surveillance in your day-to-day as you conduct this business.
6: That's one thing that makes me... Really think about leaving the business every day. We have helicopters over my house, they're just hovering there, they're watching. You know, you go outside, you're always harassed by the police. And <clears throat> when the cops see this, they don't know any better, they go by what they read in the headlines. So they treat everybody here a lot harder than the outside. So they're always on us. I mean. They're here undercover every day. We know what they're capable of. They were at my front door without me even knowing. They've been in this building without me knowing. So I hope you're not a cop. (laughs) (laughs) It's in our DNA here to hate the Canadian government, the provincial police, the RCMP. It's just built in us, man. So it's like growing up, you you know, you hear all this, and then it's even me talking about it, my kids hear it. But I'm not ashamed to say it in front of my kids because it's the truth. You know, we tell them how, how these police are around here. I've been arrested
3: myself back in 2014. It was a sting operation, very similar to Project MyGale. 400 officers swept across Canada and arrested nearly 30 people they suspected of smuggling tobacco and having connections with organized crime. Dio was one of eight Mohawks arrested in the sting. In the end, he took a plea deal. But he insists that his only business was tobacco and that he wasn't involved with any of the shadier characters in the raid. You know, your name is splattered in the
6: papers. They always throw extra things in there. They put in there Italian mafia, organized crime, guns, drugs. I was arrested with a lot of people I never even met. I think at the time it was the biggest one in North America until
3: their case appeared. Derek White's case. Took the record away from you. I'm glad. This is Running Smoke. We'll
6: be right back.
3: Called the largest raid of its kind in America, Quebec Provincial Police carried out Operation MyGale, aimed at dismantling what they call a drug, tobacco and money laundering ring that had roots in Quebec and reached as far as South America and Europe. Media. On the morning of March 30th, 2016, after 18 months of investigation and surveillance, the Project MyGale trapdoor was finally sprung. More than 600 officers knocked down doors in North Carolina, Montreal, Toronto, and elsewhere, and made 60 arrests, chopping down the entire criminal organization in one fell swoop. Police seized $4.5 million in cash, 1,800 pounds of cocaine, 50 pounds of meth, and 116,000 pounds of contraband tobacco. On the outskirts of Montreal, SWAT teams burst through Sylvain Ettier's door and found him sleeping in bed. 18 others were arrested in connection with the tobacco plot. But as for Derek and the three other Mohawks targeted in the raid, well, they were still walking free. Hunter Montour, a golf course manager who lives in Ganawage, didn't even know the raids were happening until hours later. I was
8: playing hockey, I think it was a Wednesday night, and a, a buddy of mine, who, who who's also, he's in the tobacco industry, he's been in the tobacco industry for years, he goes, he goes hey, I heard something about a some kind of sting going on. And I'm like, okay. I didn't think anything of it. He goes, you're going to be uh, arrested then. I said, I don't know why. I literally had no idea. Um, so the phone rings and I answer the phone and it's the town cops,
3: PKs. Mohawk Peacekeepers, the local police force on the territory.
8: He says, uh, this is so-and-so. He says, um... Just letting you know that the SQ uh, want you to turn yourself in. I says, for what? He goes, I don't know. He says, uh, they called and said, uh, you have
3: to uh, turn yourself in. The reason Hunter wasn't already wearing handcuffs is that Canadian police are not allowed on the reservation without permission from the peacekeepers. And peacekeepers do not enforce tobacco laws. So it was up to Hunter to go to the police station himself. I says, I, I don't, I'm not doing that today. I says, I got
8: shit to do. I says, my kids are going to be home from school today. Nobody's around. My wife's at work. I
3: says, I'm not going to just go turn myself in for them. for I don't even know what this is about. In the end, he found someone to watch the kids and got his other errands sorted out. He called ahead to the police station to let him know he was going to be coming in.
8: I was just getting ready to go out. And, and then the phone rang and, and it was Derek saying, meet me at... Uh, we had to meet the lawyers. I guess he had gotten already started getting ready. He must have got the call too, or whatever.
4: The peacekeepers called me, and they said that uh, we have a warrant for your arrest, but we're not going to arrest you because uh, it's for tobacco, which is we they uh, they recognize it as a legal part of our our um, inherited right, basically, and it's legal in Ganawage, So they're not. A, they said it's up to me whether I want to go and turn myself in or don't turn myself in.
3: Were you surprised to get the call?
4: Uh, Yeah, actually I was. um, Caught me off guard. I mean, we heard that there was a raid going on, but it was for uh, um, drugs and um, guns and uh, money laundering or whatever the heck it was that they they, uh, raided all these places off the reserve.
3: So, as soon as you hung up with the peacekeepers, who'd you call next?
4: I called my lawyer and I asked uh, his opinion. And he kind of said, Well, it's up to you what you want to do. I said, Well, I'm going to turn myself in. I said, I don't have anything uh, to hide from. I mean, uh, it's, it's legal here. And, uh, so I went and turned myself in.
8: Then they start reading us our rights and questioning and whatever and they were asking ridiculous stupid stuff and I answered some of the questions Uh, the questions were really really insane like what? just about who I knew I said I know all kinds of people all over the place I said I don't want to tell you anything because you're just going to go bother
3: them too so I'm not telling you anymore
4: I guess that they were trying to trying to get information you know
3: did you say anything or were you silent the
4: whole time? Uh, I said a few things, but uh, it's nothing that they didn't already know. You know, They already know everything if they were uh, doing an investigation for 18 months or whatever, how long it was. So, I mean, I didn't have anything to hide. I mean, uh, I wasn't involved in all those things that they said in the, on the papers and the news and stuff like that. It's me, it's just strictly tobacco and... So, in my mind, I wasn't doing anything
8: wrong. The news was, was insane, the coverage. I was like, are you serious? Like, hundreds of millions of dollars, and they, they, all these stories come up. here you're, you're in the mafia, you're the, associated with these biker gangs, and I'm like, no, 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 no. It's
3: crazy. Derek's name was blasted across newspapers and websites within hours. He was referred to as a top ranking member of the smuggling operation. Well, see, that's uh one thing that they didn't really do their
4: homework very well. I mean, I was uh I was way on the bottom of the totem pole, but they of course they have to put the native person uh near close to, to the top, you know, and make it uh, such a big uh a big thing that it's all the natives and we're uh we're dealing with the outsiders with the mafia and the bikers and uh all the you know all the bad people i guess when they do a a sting operation it's easier just to grab the whole crew even if they're not a part of anything you know like i mean there's over 50 guys in there and i don't know any of
3: them to derek and others in Kahnawake, This was just another example of Canada overstepping its bounds, infringing on Indigenous rights, and making an example out of successful Native businessmen. It was a publicity stunt. There's more tobacco around than ever. There's
4: trucks coming in every day. I mean, this whole, if you go around, it's not like as if, oh, we caught the big guy, we caught Derek, you know, and it's all going to stop. (laughs) Ha! That's what they think. There's more fucking tobacco in this reserve than there has been in the last 10 years.
3: Derek posted bail after his questioning and was home before evening. But his release came with a few conditions. Well, I can't leave Quebec, that's
4: one. They, uh, well, if I ask if I got to go somewhere or something, if I'm going on a vacation or something, I got to ask permission to leave. But uh, other than that, uh, the worst part is is that
3: NASCAR banned me. Next time on Running Smoke.
4: I mean, look at NASCAR. I mean it, it was it was built off bootlegging. No matter what, Derek was gonna get banned. We dissolved Derek's partnership where he was no longer an owner of MBM Motorsports. Usually you're you're innocent until you're proven guilty, right? But right off the bat, they fucking banned me. As soon as I'm free from all this stuff, I'm gonna look for a goddamn good lawyer in the States and sue NASCAR, too.
3: Running Smoke is a production of Campside Media, Dan Patrick Productions, and Workhouse Media. Written and reported by me, Rajiv Gola. Our producers are Aaliyah Papes, Lane Gerbig, and Julie Deneshe. Our editors are Michelle Lanz and Emily Martinez. Sound design and original music by Mark McAdam. Additional sound and mixing by Ewen Lai Tremuyn. Additional reporting by Susie McCarthy. Our executive producers are Dan Patrick, Josh Dean of Campside Media, Paul Anderson, Nick Pinella, and Andrew Greenwood for Workhouse Media. Fact-checking by Mary Mathis, artwork by Polly Adams, and additional thanks to Greg Horn, Johnny Kaufman, Sierra Franco, Elizabeth Van Brocklin, and Sean Flynn.